Amen. Well, I'm going to move over here to the middle. As I'm getting set up here, I invite you to uh, turn uh, with me to the prophet Isaiah. We are uh, going to uh, take a break in our series in Philippians, and we're going to consider uh, these words from the prophet Isaiah this morning. Isaiah chapter 40. Let me read Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 26. Those are the verses that we're going to consider this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or What man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop of a bucket, and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood and will, that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely they are planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see, who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Let's pray. Almighty God, these are powerful words from your servant Isaiah. We thank you for these words. We thank you for who you are, uh, most of all, uh, your, your character that these words reveal to us. May our time this morning in your word prove useful to us only by your spirit working in us and through your word in faith. May you receive all the glory. You are the almighty God. Amen. Amen. Well, at this point in Israel's history, uh, the kingdom of Israel has been divided into two. The northern kingdom has already been exiled and conquered and carried off. And Isaiah, the prophet, he's lived through this tragic event. He's seen it happen. And he's pleading with the southern kings of Judah. And he's saying, do not follow in your brother's footsteps. Do not walk the same path that they did. 
just east into exile. Rather, trust in the Lord. But all the worldly wisdom at the time said, no, we need to trust in ourselves and, and we, we need to look and, and see how big and powerful and scary this, this evil empire is, this nation of Babylon. God can't save us from this evil empire. So we need to go and seek other nations. We need to go and seek out other people. Other, uh, Egypt maybe can help us. Maybe someone else can help us. See, this was the crisis of faith that, is, uh, that Isaiah was prophesying against. And he was pleading with these kings not to look for themselves for answers, not to look inward, not to look out to other nations for help, but to look instead to the Lord and to trust in him. And as the story goes in the first half of the book of Isaiah, some kings listened to the prophet, others did not, and there was a back and forth until eventually the warning of a future exile became a certainty. And we see this in the chapter previous, Isaiah 39. The prophet makes it known that the kingdom of Judah will indeed follow their brother's footsteps into exile. And that's how the first half of the book of Isaiah ends, with this picture of destruction and defeat and exile. And so we can imagine their pain and their confusion, the suffering of the people, as, as they doubt, as they wonder. Would this exile prove that God had indeed forsaken them? Has God forsaken His covenant people? Wouldn't it prove that God no longer cared for them, that he wasn't the sovereign Lord over all history and all nations, that he wasn't stronger, that he wasn't mightier than Babylon? Those are the questions. Those are the questions that are the backdrop of this passage this morning. Will God save us? Will he deliver us from exile? And these are questions that every Christian, you and I, will we'll go through life and we'll, we'll ask ourselves these questions. Will God care for me? Does he love me? Will he save me? Has he saved me? Has he cared for me? Does he delight in me? These are the questions uh, that have uh, always been the questions of God's people throughout history. And we turn the page to Isaiah chapter 40. And the answer we get from God's prophet Isaiah, the resounding answer is yes. God will save. Verses 1 through 11, we didn't read, uh, but they open with those beautiful words, comfort, comfort my people. And, and we read that Jerusalem's warfare, it will end and, and her iniquity, iniquity will be pardoned. And God promises that he will gather his flock back together and he will tend for them uh, like the good shepherd that he is. And how will he bring about this salvation? How is he going to accomplish the redemption of his people? Does Israel have anything to do? Does Israel... Uh, have to uh, fight in any way? Must they rise up to conquer and topple their enemies? Do they have to secure their deliverance and their salvation? No. This is the assurance that Isaiah gives to God's people, that God will save them, that God will deliver them, and that He will do all that He has promised because He is a powerful God and He is a personal God. You see, not only is God willing to save them, but he is also able to save. God is able because he is a powerful God. And God is willing because he is a personal God. That is Isaiah's message for us this morning. And so to prove God's power, looking at that uh, theme first, 
Isaiah uses several metaphors and rhetorical questions to get us thinking about how powerful God is. And he, he makes this point not by using linear uh, uh, deductive logic. So this is not going to be like Paul's letter that we've been thinking about the past several weeks. He's going to weave back and forth between different themes, all of which point to God's ultimate unmatched power over all things. And at every point, he's directly answering this question. Is God really powerful to keep his promises? And so that's what we're looking at, a powerful God. The first theme that Isaiah weaves through this section is that God is powerful over creation. So the people of Israel ask, is God really able to keep all of his promises? And Isaiah responds to that question by by saying, well, let me ask you some questions of my own. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Have you done that? Have you marked off the heavens with the span of your hand? Can you put the the dust and the smoke of the earth and and capture it into a measuring cup? Or can you weigh the mountains and the hills on a scale? The answer to those questions is, of course not. No one one can do that. These are are ridiculous questions to even ask. They're they're absurd to even even question. Back when we lived in Richmond, Virginia, uh, there's the James River Uh, that went through Richmond, not the church that's just down the street, but the actual body of water, the James River. And it it cuts through the city. And it's a beautiful, uh, a beautiful river. Uh, And I think Richmond is the only city in America that actually has a river flowing through it that has class four or even class five rapids going through it. So it is a, it's a powerful river at times. And when I still lived there, I went down to the James uh, with some friends at a time when it was at its highest water level. And I was able to walk up right up close to where the water was flowing. And it was crazy to see how powerful this water was, this river flowing. And to think and to know that if I only took one more step, I would have been washed away. That would have been the end. I wouldn't be able to resist the current of that raging river, let alone measure the contents of the whole river in the, in the palm of my hand. But this is what God has done. Verses 13 and 14, they continue with this theme of creation. Not only did God measure not just one river, but all the waters of the whole earth. We can't even measure the depths of the ocean. We don't even know what's down there. God's measured it all on the palm of his hand. But not only that, he's, he's marked off the heavens with his th- finger and his thumb, as it were. But it also says that he's had, he had no teacher to, to instruct him how to do this. There was no master architect. God did not follow any blueprints. There was nothing. There was nothing apart from God himself. He alone is the eternal. He alone is the great I am. There was nothing else until he spoke it into being, by the word of his power. And so again, Isaiah asks us to look up at the stars in the sky in verse 26. Lift up your eyes, look at the stars, what do you see? Who created these? The one who created them is he who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Not a single star is missing in the sky, because God calls them by name. 
It is impossible for us. But this is what God has done. He's, he's measured everything. He's put every star in his place. God commands the stars. He commands them as a general commands troops. Every single one. He's the Lord of hosts. As one commentator put it, he, he says that God commands uh, them all by name. And they, the stars, they hear his summons and they never miss muster. Therefore, Isaiah raises the question, does not this uniquely powerful and eternal God, the one who has no equal in creation, not also, uh, does he not also have power and control over all things? And to ask that question is to answer it. God is powerful over all creation. But if we needed any more proof of God's absolute power over all things, Isaiah weaves in another theme in this section. Not only does God hold complete power over everything in all creation, but he alone is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is powerful and has complete dominion over all nations. Verse 15, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are accounted as the dust on the scales. I love that picture. How can Israel believe in the promises of God while they are exiled and living in Babylon? It's because Babylon is nothing more than a small drop of water in a two-gallon bucket, a small drop of water in the whole James River. It's completely inconsequential. So what is Babylon compared to God? Compared to God, Babylon weighs as much as a speck of dust that lands and slowly falls and lands on a scale. It's nothing. The actions and decisions of Babylon affect the actions and decisions of God as much as a particle of dust tips the balances of a scale. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. All the nations of the earth are of no significance to God. They are no threat to his power. And God does not wait to sit back to watch what they will do before he acts. He does not react. He is not contingent on anything. No nation, no one. And God alone decides the rise and fall of nations. And I wonder if we really believe that. Do we believe that America is in God's hands and that whatever comes to pass in this country is, is what God has ordained and what is ultimately good for his church? If we believe that, how would that change the outlook on our lives? But this is the teaching of God's word, that God alone brings princes to nothing. Verse 23. He makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Verse 24, scarcely or, or barely or hardly, the nations of the earth are, are planted. They're barely planted. Their roots have barely begun to grow deep. And the Lord blows on them. And they all, all fall down like, like stubble. And so our, our political leaders in our country today, in D.C., all over the country, they're all, all vying for power. And many of them, at least many, do not realize that the only reason they have any semblance of power is because God has given them that power. They do not understand that the only reason they are still standing and that America still persists as a nation is because God has determined it to be so. But as soon as God says enough, this nation will crumble away like every nation before it. It'll be blown away. It'll be swept away like, 
dead autumn leaves off, off the sidewalk. And that's not something that we need to be looking forward to or cheering for or, or wondering about or worrying about. We just need to know and remember who's truly in charge. Psalm 2 says, The kings of the earth and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. This is what they're doing. But what does the psalmist say that God does in response to all of the kings and the nations, all their conniving and their plotting and their planning? What does He say? He says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs because all the nations, every single one, all of them added up together and placed before God still amount to nothing before Him. Verse 17, they are nothing to him. They are accounted to him as less than nothing, as emptiness. That's the same word that was used to describe the existence before creation. That the earth was without form. It was empty. There was nothing. You see, God is he's not the greatest of all created beings. He is not created. He is the only uncreated. The eternal, the preexistent one. The first cause. From his inherent power, and him alone does he order by decree, by the word of his power, everything else into existence. But God remains completely other. He is not bound by time. He is immaterial. So even all of this, the very real earth, the very real stars in the sky, this material world all around us, is still, in comparison to God, as if nothing or, or emptiness, completely other to him. And so try for a second, try now. Kids, this is a good one for you to try. Try to think about nothing. Empty your mind completely and think about nothing. Are you able to think about nothing? Or eventually, do you start to think of something? Maybe you're thinking of a dark, empty room. Well, that's still something. R.C. Sproul, he makes this point in his book, The Holiness of God. It's a wonderful book that we are unable to comprehend nothingness. We can't do it. It makes our brains hurt even trying to think about it. But only God, who is outside of creation, completely other from creation, by His divine decree, He made things. He made some things. He made everything that exists. The world out of nothing. We all must start when we create whatever it might be. Our jobs, our work, our uh, uh, clay pot, all, all these things. We start with material. We start with something. God alone, He's the one who starts and creates with nothing. And so will not this God, who is even stronger than the emptiness and void, who made all things out of nothing, will He also not have complete power, Isaiah says, over everything that exists? But that's not all Isaiah says. Even if that is not enough, it leads Isaiah to this last theme that he's going to work in this section. God is powerful over all creation. He's powerful over every nation. And so he asks his final set of rhetorical questions. And now he's getting to the very heart of the matter, the heart of our issue this morning, is where are we putting our trust? Where are you putting your trust? When uh, times are tough, when things are not going well, who are you leaning upon? Where do you turn for direction and for comfort and for wisdom and guidance? What will bring you peace and joy even during trials and sufferings? Where else can we go but to God? 
Because Isaiah asks the question, who is a God like our God? I love the biting sarcasm in verses 18 and 19. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? An idol? That's your answer? You think that an object made out of hands of men can represent the eternal God. And you go so far as to put your trust in it. This is your hope. This is what you're putting your faith in, Isaiah is asking. Really? This is what you're trusting in? Or are you going to look to the stars and you're going to worship the stars? These were all common practices among the kings and the kingdoms of Isaiah's time. All this pagan idolatry. But I'm, I'm so uh, worried and, and, and uh, just uh, upset about seeing how commonplace this is also becoming in our society today. I just saw uh, yesterday a post from a local bookstore talking about all these new books on astrology and, and witchcraft and crystals and all of these things that they had just purchased that they were excited about. What foolishness is all of this? That we would look to anything in the created world instead of looking past all of that to the Creator Himself. So we look to the stars. We look to ourselves. We look to political parties. We look everywhere except to God to find assurance and salvation and peace and meaning and purpose in our lives. And I, I grieve so many pockets of of the American church that have made the self greater than God. They've, they've flipped the words of our confession around. Instead of asking, what is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? Instead, we ask, what is the chief end of God? And we say, God's chief end is to help me, and to make me happy, to satisfy my, my needs and my desires. We've made our material lives of greater importance than to serve the God of all life. We, uh, we seek everything in ourselves apart from Him. But even us here, we, we all know that this would have been all of us. We all know that we've been lost because of sin. And if not for God, so too would we all go. There are none who seek after God. We all come into this world with the stain of sin. We were all walking in that darkness. All of us were that way. And if we are completely unable to seek after God, which was our state after the fall, that's where we were, what hope would we ever have of finding this all-powerful God in the first place? And see, this is the other grand, important theme in this passage in Isaiah. It was only the voluntary condescending on God's behalf. The only reason we know God at all is because He's willingly revealed himself to us. And so here's the wonderful mystery of it all, is that the God of all creation, who measured the waters in the, in the cup of his uh, hand, who, who marked off the heavens with the span of his hand, the God who sits above the heavens and accounts all nations as nothing, the God who with a simple breath could topple every kingdom of man. This incomprehensible, incomparable, almighty God is also our personal God. Not only has the powerful God of all creation revealed Himself to us, but He revealed Himself to us personally in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Verse 13 asks, uh, who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? That's a way of asking, a way of saying, who has knowledge of God in, in, his, in his inward mind, his, his inward thoughts? Who here knows the thoughts of God? Can any of us measure God's thoughts and understand His ways? How could any creature, listening to everything we've just said, how could any creature expect to know God in this way? How could anyone expect to understand Him? God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Until we understand how vastly different we are from God, the chasm that exists between God and fallen humanity, how utterly incomprehensible He is to our minds, we won't grasp the magnitude of the fullness of what Scripture teaches regarding this subject. Because Scripture tells us, 1 Corinthians tells us, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him, but we have the mind of Christ. Paul quotes this exact verse here, Isaiah 40, verse 13. He's asking the same question that Isaiah asked hundreds of years earlier. The only difference now is that we actually have an answer. The remarkable and unbelievable answer is that we do understand the mind of God because we are in Christ and we have the mind of Christ. It is through Jesus that God makes himself known. Jesus says, uh, he says this to his disciples in the Gospel of John, that all uh, that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. And how amazing is it? How amazing is it, friends? That the all-powerful God of all creation had purposed in himself to make atonement for his people. That the unsearchable mystery of his will was to bring you out of your sin and misery and redeem you and cleanse you to renew you and make you his child by uniting you to Christ. We have this mind of Christ because we are one with him. We are a new creation and he has given us his very own spirit. And so you see, this is the solution to our self-centeredness in our culture and in our churches. So we ask ourselves that question, where have we centered our lives? Is it centered in, in ourselves? Have you centered your life in yourself? And how well is that going when we do that? Or have you centered your life in the one who is completely of himself? The one who is completely sufficient in and of himself. You see, this is the, the paradox, paradoxical truth that is our hope. Our hope is in the self-centeredness of the selfless suffering servant. Our hope is in the person, the self of Jesus Christ. He alone is our hope. Our hope is in the one self who truly had a reason to boast. Listen to these claims of Jesus. He says, you are all hungry, well, I'm the bread of life. You all live in darkness, I am the light of the world. You all wander like lost sheep. Well, I'm the good shepherd. I'm, I'm the gate. I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. See, who can make such claims except God himself? Jesus, the Son of God, he is God. He is the Almighty. He is Almighty as the Father is Almighty. He is powerful as the Father is powerful. And yet, this is our personal God. He who was the Lord of all, he became a servant for us. He who was the master of all, the king of kings, stooped down to wash 
his disciples' feet. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held onto for personal gain, but he emptied himself of that glory, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself even to the point of death, obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. This is what the world does not understand. This is the wisdom of God that is, the, is foolishness to the world. That's why Paul says to the Corinthians that none of the rulers of this age understood this secret wisdom of God, but these things God has revealed to us through His Spirit. So what is that secret wisdom of God? Well, it's, it's the wisdom of the one whom Isaiah would prophesy about just a few chapters later, about the suffering servant, king of kings the suffering servant of God's people, who in the fullness of time had come, God revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Have you put your faith in Jesus this morning? Or is your faith still centered around you or around your decisions or around others that you are putting your trust in? If you have not trusted in Jesus this morning, then please do not put it off any longer. Give your life purpose. Surrender your life completely to God. He is your hope. He is the creator of all things. He is your joy. He is the rock of your salvation. We are powerless to do anything, let alone to save ourselves. But the good news of the gospel is that this all-powerful God, the one whom all the nations of the earth are accounted for as nothing, he does not account you as nothing. Our text says and our text describes us as as grasshoppers that God's looking down upon. Consider the vast chasm between God and us. Yet he willingly, lovingly took on our form, took on our substance, took on our flesh, became one of us. This is the God that we serve. This is the God in whom we trust. He has promised in his word that he is our God and that we are his people He does not promise his people a life free of pain. He does not promise us a life free of temptation and hardship and loss. Rather, he invites us to trust in him and in his wisdom and to know that he is not indifferent to any of our pain. He sympathizes with our weaknesses and he, for our sake, embraced the horrific pain of the death of the cross on our behalf. You see, he is our personal God who became one of us And he is our powerful God who is mighty to save. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not only the all-powerful creator God, for if if that was all you were, uh, that would not be good news for us. But you are also our personal, all-loving, and willing Savior of your people. You have saved us to yourself, and there is no God like you. Jesus, if you have given us everything, even all of yourself, how can we not in return give you all of ourselves? So give us the grace that we would, uh, and the will to do so. And we pray all these things in your holy name. Amen.